and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. I'm Juliette Ori, and alongside me today is my co-host, Philippa Sturt, who's on board and helping the cause of bringing the fascinating business stories of Ori Clark's clients to a wider audience with this podcast. And if you like what we do here, please do rate, review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at bizwithoutbs. That's at B-I-Z without B-S. Now, with that being said, hello, Philippa. How are you? Who's our guest today? And what are we going to be talking about? Hi, Juliet. I'm very well, thank you. And today's guest is my lovely client, Sinna Van Kampen. Sinna is an entrepreneur with a broad range of experience across four different industries and over 10 different brands, covering everything from multi-million pound global projects to startups. Sinna previously co-founded LVK Global, a sales and marketing agency, and developed Piccolo Baby Food, the fastest growing baby food brand in the UK. His most recent venture is founding Tonic Health, a startup aiming to empower people to work with and not against their immune system. And within the first year of trading, he secured half a million in funding and launched into the largest health retailers in the country, including Boots, Sainsbury's, Holland and & Barrett, and WH Smith's. Sunna, welcome to the podcast. And I believe Juliet's got the first question. Well, welcome. How are we, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. A pleasure, a pleasure. Now, I want to know what is currently keeping you busy right now. Well, as a founder of a startup, there's everything keeping me busy. Like, there's so many things that go on. You have to have so many different hats in the business from logistics, finance to marketing and everything else. But what's keeping me busy is we're actually working on our first international expansion at the moment, which is really exciting. You know, then we are really trying to, you know, keep the UK business growing and moving it forward all the time whilst then looking at another huge market across the pond is incredibly busy and time consuming. It's like starting up another business in a way, almost all over again. I'm pretty fascinated by how you have begun this business and how you ended up getting into it. Good question. It's been a long time coming, funnily enough. Um, so how I got into it was actually being a bit of a boring banker. I used to work for Barclays Bank and I was getting sick all the time. Every winter I'd get three, four, five colds a winter and got to a point where I played sport, I ate good food, I thought I was healthy, but everyone was like, why do you keep getting sick all the time? You know, it was just too regular. And so I wanted to kind of understand what it was and figure it out. So that began a whole process of me self-experimenting, buying lots of different remedies and things and trying to learn about the immune system of what would actually work and help it. And then after, you know, a couple of times going, figuring out what would work and what I should try, I stumbled upon this recipe, which was essentially plants, vitamins, and minerals that I would take at the first sign of a cold. And I got it to a point where I could literally feel a sniffle coming on, have a tickle in the back of my throat, take this remedy I made three or four times in the day, and then the next day, I would still feel it was a little bit there. And then day three, it was just gone. It was gone. And I wouldn't get sick. And I could stop it right there in its tracks. And that was like my light bulb moment. Like, this is incredible to be able to do that with your body at, you know, point of illness, because everyone is going, 
oh, wow, I, oh, I feel like I'm coming down with something. Oh, I've got this on the weekend. I don't want to miss it. Or I've got this gig or event or something. And I could just interject at that point, give them the right vitamins, minerals, and nutrients they need, and then stop it and help them recover much faster. And then to my amazement, kind of after doing more research, the science supports all of that. The studies have already been done. There's plenty of literature out there that shows this is effective and works. And I just couldn't understand why people A, didn't do it, and B, were buying drug-based products, which actually suppress your symptoms. And if you know anything about a virus, the virus has no symptoms. Your immune system has symptoms when it's fighting a virus. So if you then suppress those symptoms, you're actually suppressing your defense mechanism and you will extend the duration of your cold and flu. So it's this whole kind of misunderstanding of how we should be looking after ourselves that I wanted to address. And how do you go from, from was this, you know, manufactured in your kitchen? <laughs> Pretty much at the start, yeah. <laughs> right. Handing it out to all your mates, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Proper startup style, just blending stuff in my kitchen and mixing it up and making a mess. And now where is it made? We, don't worry, we have a proper manufacturing facility, all farmer grade, up in near Scunthorpe in the UK. Yeah. So very high-tech, proper facility. So you go from, te- explain to me the journey from kind of startup to now the fact that you're in some of the biggest brand retailers. It takes time. Um, you know, everyone kind of, you know, we've since we've launched in 18 months, we've managed to get into all these big retailers. So everyone from the outside kind of goes, oh, wow, what a success story. Qu- what a quick journey. You must be amazing. Truth is, back in 2018, we tried to launch it. We had manufacturing delays and issues that meant we were creeping into October, November, and every time it was, you know, we were losing a month because our formulation wasn't blending together properly and there were some reactions that we didn't want to see. So the first time we tried, we actually ran out of time, missed the winter because we just had to can it because retailers work a few months ahead and just said, okay, we're going to have to come back a year later. So then we launched in uh, October 2019. Stronger and better, I take it. Always, absolutely. <laughs> I, I remember my first job was, in fact, in a suet factory. <laughs> and um, I, I thought this was going to be fantastic, right? Little did I know, so the man that started the suet factory decided he would go in competition to McDougal's. McDougal's have the market locked in suet. Anyway, you basically mix fat and flour and it has to get compressed through a machine at a certain speed, heat, I mean, various things. It's a messy, bloody business. And I think unless you've gone into manufacturing, I mean, I'm not comparing your product to the fat and the flour, but I I, I equate to the fact it's a bloody nightmare to manufacture things. It can be, for sure, yeah, because you've you've also got a global supply chain to deal with. So, you know, we're buying ingredients from all over the world, um, dependent on where they're grown and where the best harvests are. So, yeah, you're trying to bring things all together from all over the world on the right time, pack it into a box, and then get it to the retailers on time. And obviously, just-in-time methodology, we've all learned about it in our business books, but it's actually a nightmare because you're always cutting things a little bit too fine and you're running around and chasing your tail. And then you can have issues and delays where an ingredient's two weeks late and then your whole production runs delayed by two weeks and then you're two weeks late for your retailer launch and then they're on the phone to you going, where's my stuff? And, you know, product's not on shelf. And then it's really costing you money. And, you know, 
especially in the pandemic when demand was impossible to forecast or predict because it was just going up and down and up and down. You know, we, we had some periods of out of stock and then you got upset manufacturers and things and yeah, there's, you, you can't get things quicker because they've got, Worst you know, nightmare. yeah, Not. to come from halfway across the world and stuff. It's terribly difficult. And did you find when you were first starting out that there was an issue with the amount that you were ordering from manufacturers? Or were they, you know, could you order enough that it made it worth their while? Yeah, just about. I mean, I think our first order value was around 10 grand. Um, so it was it was doable, but it's not easy if you're just starting up, you know, out of your own kitchen. We had no investment at that point. You know, I'd been saving for a long time to kind of reserve up a bit of cash so I could do this. We then spent that 10 grand on the first one that then went in the bin, you know, and then we had to wait another year and come back. So it gave me a bit more time to save and then get things off the ground. But yeah, it's, it's doable. A lot more manufacturers are getting a lot more flexible. Consumers want more customization and kind of personalization on products. So they're working on getting kind of smaller and smaller runs. So there are entry points out there. But how do you end up getting into the big retails? It's a bit of a process. I'd say the, the best thing you can do with retailers is engage them in what you're trying to achieve over time. So don't phone them up and say, hey, I've got this, it's amazing, buy it, because it's very easy for them to go, no, I'm all right, thanks. And often they have set range review windows, which it might be once or twice a year. So if you're not talking to them at that right time, they can't even list you even if they wanted to. So the, the the key was we actually started talking to them six months before we even launched. Had a cup of tea. Uh, yeah, actually, in their cafeteria, yeah. So no, you keep saying we all the way through. We did this, then we did that. So there was more than just you, or was it you as a founder on your own starting this business? I am the sole founder of Tonic, but I honestly like couldn't do it without my team, support network, investors, you know, Anything I do, whether I'm creating a new flavor or trying to tweak a bit of messaging or packaging design, I need to speak to people and go, what do you think of this? What about this? And, you know, in truth, like where I started before we'd launched talking to Boots that very first time when we didn't even have a product, I literally bought her a little bag of white powder in a, in a plastic <laughs> Okay, thing that could have gone really wrong. <laughs> I mean, it was a risk, right? But it was more important for me to be in front of her and talking to her and giving her a sample. But starting at that point to where we are now and what we're selling and the, the proposition and the brand and everything, it's evolved so much and it, it couldn't be without the people I've surrounded myself with. That's why I was. Did you find it quite lonely? Oh, it's incredibly lonely. Of course it is. I mean, especially what we've had over the last 18 months with lockdowns and you sometimes like, feel like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're incredibly like stressed trying to do everything. And you're just sat at home in a little room, like just churning away at a laptop. You know, that whole problem shared is a problem halved. You can't have that because normally that conversation would be at the coffee machine or, you know, when you're having lunch with someone or whatever it may be. But when you're doing it all on your own, it's tough. They call it the the loneliness of leadership. The loneliness of leadership is a good way to summarise it. And what would you say is the most uncomfortable truth that you've discovered about being in business on your own? Rather than, I mean, you come from this big finance background. To me, you're the perfect person to set up a startup because you must know a lot about how to run a business. Yeah, I think I've learned a lot, but at the same time, there's still more to learn and more to do. And I think the real uncomfortable truth about being a founder and starting up a startup especially is 
probably the fact actually that your resources are so limited and every single penny counts. Cash is king ultimately. And kind of when you're in a big corporate like a Barclays or a Virgin where I was in, you get given a budget, there's your pot of money, spend it. Don't overspend. Oh, if you overspend by 10%, they usually let you off kind of thing. And it's very clear and lax. Whereas really with us, when we've had like big spikes because we've had pandemic fear and we were featured in the Telegraph during the pandemic and all of a sudden our sales just rocketed, you know, then it's like amazing. We've got loads of cash coming in, but oh, that means I if this keeps happening, I need to now go and spend 60 grand on more product that isn't going to come for three months. And then you're redoing all your cash flow and it's a complete nightmare because you think, hey, we've just made it. And all of a sudden you're looking at your cash flow and going, oh no, <laughs> like I've got to now spend loads more money on stock. And then it's that constant challenge of then when, you know, there's peaks and troughs and you have a bit, you know, August is quite quiet for us as immunity product. Everyone's trying to go on holiday. They kind of forget about their immune system a bit. And then at that point, you're not seeing the sales come in and you're trying to then balance the spending. And so I think, no matter how much you've done in corporate, and I was like head of trading marketing for you know Virgin Holidays, which was a commercial role, you still don't have the level of budget, responsibility, accountability, understanding of cash flow that you will ever have in a real startup where it's your business. And I think that's incredibly hard because sometimes you're, you're literally, how I described it was you're literally working out when your business is going to die and run out of money. But that to me is amazing that you take that on board because one of my biggest challenges is most startups are totally unaware of, of watching cash flow. And once they get investment, they decide to spunk it on a fancy office or something, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I have no doubt you will do phenomenally well and succeed because you understand cash. And it, it coming in and going out the door <laughs> and making sure you've got enough. And, yeah. and that is the raw reality, in, in my view, of, of business and where most people go wrong, of the no ownership of money, that there isn't a secret money tree. Well, I, I totally agree. And, you know, it makes you a bit of a Scrooge sometimes because you're like, no, well, I can't afford that, you know, thousand pound laptop for this new employee. Like, can they bring their own? Okay, it might only be a thousand pounds, but add that up by five people. And then, you know, before you know it, you're spending a bit of cash when you could save it. Um, and it would be much better in the bank than spent on something that isn't going to drive revenue. How did you find the whole fundraising thing? Because to me, looking at it from the other side, it seemed to be really easy for you. Really? Like, yeah, as in it, people it were almost wasn't. throwing you money. <laughs> but how did you find having to go out there and ask people for cash? Oh, I'd hate it. I mean, I literally couldn't ask my gran for a tenner. Like if I was needed pocket money when I was a kid, I can't do it. I don't like taking money from people. And I, I feel like I should just figure it out and do it myself. Um, so the whole process for that was kind of like personally challenging. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in reality, it, you know, it's a six-month process. We yeah. started talking to investors back in probably September, October, then only managed to close in March. Or it was 1st of April, I think, we closed. So it takes time, and it's a hell of a lot of work because you're constantly trying to meet new people, sell them your story, your business. And I think the hard thing for me is because I'm quite a rational, like, numbers person, that at the time, I was basically selling a concept because we'd been trading for a few months and we didn't really have much data. So when they start asking you questions like, 
who's your, you know, your customer, what's the, you know, your lion's share of your audience and this and that. I'm like, well, I've got three months of data. So I don't know what you want me to tell you really. It's just a good idea. <laughs> like, do you want to buy it? Um, so it's, yeah, it's quite challenging from that perspective. I think um, that was my hardest thing with it anyway. And, um, you know, along the way, there must've been some screw ups. There must've been some failures. Have you discovered anything? Did any of them actually turn out to help you? I think, well, there's an important lesson in that, which is, you know, every single failure will help you because it will help you understand more. You know, as I mentioned, when we had that failed launch at the start, we came back better and stronger. We actually took that year to redo the whole brand and packaging again and work on the flavors again because we were like, well, we've got the time. So do we think this is absolutely the best it can be? Or was it just, you know, minimum viable proposition, get it out of the door? And it was. So then we rebranded and came back kind of better. And I think anything that happens in your business, there will always be where you look back and go, why did I spend money on that? Like that, that was just pointless. But at the time you didn't know, you thought you were making the right decision. And yeah, then you've got to kind of learn that. I think you know, what's our biggest screw up other than failing to launch and delaying the whole launch by a year. It's very normal. Um, very it's, normal. It's very normal in a startup and, you know, you need the perseverance to keep going. I think, you know, one of my biggest screw ups is probably not being close enough to some of the detail and not necessarily my own detail, but as we built the team, I like to trust people and trust they're going to do their job. And it's not that they didn't do their job. They thought they were doing their job. And, you know, because I wasn't close enough to that particular piece of activity, you know, there were things being missed where if we'd have actually all spent a bit more time on it, gone on into the detail, we would have got a better outcome and a result. And I think everything in, you've got to sweat the small stuff in startup because, you know, really, like they say, like that one customer matters, you know, the quality of that email we send can be the difference between someone buying a product and not, or the difference between someone uh, subscribing to the product and then being a customer that spends four or 500 pounds with us over the year. And, you know, I was just kind of letting the team get on with those kind of things. And, then subsequently realizing, well, wait a minute, our email performance isn't so great and we haven't got great open rates. Why is that? And then spent the time to go into the depth and found loads of kind of wins that we could improve on. And now a quick word from our sponsor. At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients. And if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Recently, Dominic Frisby sat down with Richard Ory to talk about inheritance tax. Successful planning can significantly increase what your children or your inheritees receive. So it's important to plan well. And I speak as someone who had a, a loved one pass away last year. A properly drafted will with a trusted executor will take a huge admin burden off a grieving family. So it's really important to get your will clear and straight 
and with a good executor. Yes. I think the example of giving the gifts of surplus income is a good one where if you know that's something you intend to do, to keep the records as you go along and know your, let your executor know where those records can be found, takes a lot of the admin burden away from preparing the form. But if you die without a will or with a will that doesn't fit the circumstances, you can change it. If all the beneficiaries are over 18, they can sit down and decide what to do with the money. And if they agree, it's fine. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. I think one of the most misunderstood things when you start up is you then need people and you take on people. There's no course, there's no anything that teaches you finding the right people. And you were great at trusting them and getting on with it. And then lots of owners or founders get criticized because they're control freaks. But it's like, I've, I've begun, we've got this pot of money. We've got to do a huge amount with that. And it's your own money. I think yeah. there's a big difference. Well, and I think there's a spectrum, right, between trusting and delegating, which is super critical, which you've got to get right. But at the same time, knowing when to go deep and in the detail and optimizing things because actually you know a newsletter email that we write there's probably no one better that can write it than me because i spent five years researching this stuff before we even launched the business and you know your team haven't so it's not their fault it's just you know you've got to work out what you have to go deep on and what you can delegate and i think that's the art have you had to fire anybody yet yeah unfortunately Horrid? Well, yeah, horrible. You don't ever want to do that. And um, yeah, what can you say? It's not a nice experience, but you know, you've got to get the right mix of people and the right team doing the right things. And people is like one of your biggest costs in a startup and they need to work. And, you know, it's also just sometimes a, a fit between not that they're not the right person or brilliant at what they do or you know, trying really hard. It's just actually they didn't quite have the right skill sets for startup life and, you know, being proactive, getting things done, you know, rather than just going to an agency and saying, agency, fix my problem. You know, you can't always do that in a start. You have gone from some of the big brands in the UK and City Life to this. I have, yeah. And do you not miss the, the regular paycheck? Are you glad you made the jump? I wouldn't change it for the world. Obviously, my bank balance might, but um, it would prefer it being in the corporate world. But, you know, the reality of corporate life, it wasn't me. I was, mm. you know, I was always can do, give it to me, I'll figure it out. I want to make stuff happen. And, you know, I was too constrained a lot of the time in corporate jobs with process and sign off and, you know, just crazy stuff that I just, it drove me insane. But it was a great learning. I take my hat off to you for having decent jobs and working a corporate life. Most people get stuck in the money trap. Well, I actually saw that. Like, I feel like I, I've got, I can get a good read on people and understand what's going through their head. And I had some amazing bosses when I was at Barclays. And I was a graduate straight out of uni, you know, six month placements on their graduate scheme. And in the two years where I had four different jobs, Two of the people I worked for, two of my managers, 
were amazing and they were like, look, if you like startups and you want to get in startups, just go and do it and just go and do it now. And like I had, at the time, I had ideas for other businesses and he would be like, oh, go on, write me a 10 slide deck on your business and present it to me. And so like he was almost encouraging my entrepreneurial uh, ways. Yeah, like just, you know, I I think I was very lucky to get those managers as well. But I could see that there were people in the bank that were great. They were amazing. That's incredibly smart, incredibly talented, great business people. Then got to that point, family, kids, paycheck, and it set their life up in a way that meant they couldn't go anywhere else. They couldn't even leave the bank because if they did their equivalent job in another company, it would have been a big pay cut. So they were really stuck and then didn't really enjoy their job. So I think then when someone like me came along, they were like, oh, great. Yeah, show me your ideas. Like, because genuinely it was exciting for them. So what's the hardest thing you do in your job and how do you deal with it? Hardest thing I do in my job and how do I deal with it? I think it is the managing people thing. I really do. I think it is incredibly, incredibly tough because the role becomes not about you. And like in your career, until you get into a leadership or management position, you it's all about you, your great output. What can I produce? I need to go and do this course so I can learn that and then do this. And it's all me, me, me. And then all of a sudden when you have a team, it's actually a lot less to do with you and a lot more about enabling others to be able to get to that level of performance. And that's probably where, you know, I failed a bit in my management style where I was a bit too trusting and then their output, you know, wasn't quite where it needed to be, probably not through much of their fault, but also I wasn't dipping in at the right times and giving them the right guidance. And, you know, that is a, it's a really tough thing to learn. Are there people out there that you sort of think of as inspirations that show you how to be a startup? I think there's a few things in that. So Instagram is phenomenal these days in the amount of people are putting their lives out there, right? So I know a lot of other founders in a lot of other startups and they're posting about their journey on Instagram. And so rather than them being like this inspirational figurehead, I can see what's happening in other startups and see, oh, they did this or they came up with this idea. That's great, isn't it? And you can kind of learn from each other. So that kind of transparency is really helpful. Do they post uh, the crap days? Uh, culturally, I think we're getting to a place where more and more people are starting to show, you know, warts and all. How warts and all is probably still a bit filtered. And it does give you that but- support system presumably, that you kind of need, right? Yeah, exactly. You you have to understand that there are crap days. I mean, you do still get some people on LinkedIn that, you know, all they'll post is, hey, we won this contract. Hey, we've done this amazing thing. And you see nothing in between, which is then a bit curated. But, um, you know, I think that helps massively. And then, yeah, there's so many people out there now talking about business. I mean, even this podcast, right? Every podcast out there, there's so many amazing people where you can just effectively go and sit down and listen in on a two, three, four-hour conversation with someone who's been there, done it, and sold their company for $100 million. And you can kind of hear what they've done, some of the lessons they've learned on the, along the way. And I think that's hugely em- empowering and powerful because it's all there, you know? It's then you've just got to take it and apply it. So I wouldn't even say there's like one person to look up to. I think you have to look 
to people who inspire you and you have something in common with maybe, or there's something about them that you like and you engage with. And then, you know, learn from them, learn from their mistakes. But it's easier said than done, right? Because all the information's there, but then actually taking that and applying it's a a different thing. What's the best bit of advice you ever got? Best bit of advice? I think (sighs) it's got everything to do with perseverance. I can't even like remember a nice, sexy quote for the podcast or anything. But, Keep going. You know, it was, I'm pretty sure when they told it to me, it was a bit more exciting than that. But the premise is, you know, actually, or there's like the Michael Jordan one, right? But I can't remember what his quote is, but it's like for every, you know, three-pointer he scores, there's like a thousand he missed. And because it's all about just got to keep going you've got to like keep learning keep developing keep growing keep pushing and you know when you see these startup stories of oh this company went from here to here in 18 months the reality is it was probably 10 years of practice and learning before that along the way and i mean it's a common thing in the world of startup and vcs that actually vcs will prefer a founder that has failed one company first because they know they've learned a hell of a lot from that first experience. And this time, they're less likely to fail. Well, I agree. I mean, you, you said you learn the most from failure, and I totally agree with that. I think, you know, you learn the worst from bad times than good times, all of those things. My dad has an expression like when, when things are really bad or whatever, he's like, okay, just proceed. Put, put the car into first gear and just proceed through those gears, keep going. And once you've started up the engine, you've put it into gear, you just have no choice but to proceed. Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that's helped me over the course of, you know, the journey we've had is, you know, when it gets all encompassing and overwhelming and I've got like four pages of to-do lists, I'm like, I don't even know how I'm going to get to this in the next three weeks, let alone, you know, I really need to do it all this week. You know, the one thing that gets me through that is just go, all right, let me just forget about everything else. Let me take that one thing and I'll tick that off. And then I'll take that next thing and I'll tick that off. And as long as we're taking those little daily steps that are moving us forward, then you know you're going forward and that's all that matters really. So what's the dream? What's the mission for this? Oh, the mission. I mean, we are on a mission to basically, you know, prevent people's lives being slowed down by unnecessary illness, right? When you learn about the body and health and how it works, often most illnesses people are struggling with or they're affecting their lives are highly preventable. Um, or curable quite quickly with the right things. But we've built this model of pharmacy and drugs that's fundamentally flawed, like considerably, where the, the, the medical establishment initially has to look for um, something that's patentable. So that yeah. first, because of the cost of research and development, right? And so they have to have that ownership piece. But that rules out the number one principle, which is, Anything natural, you can't patent. So that means anything that was developed in the world and that your body's accustomed to is discounted. So then pharma goes, okay, well, we need to create this new chemical compound so that it can do this thing. And so, okay, you come into the doctor and you I feel this or I've got that. You go, okay, so your symptom is this. So let me find something that stops that symptom because that's what people are looking to stop. But the symptom isn't 
the thing. The symptom is like your body's reaction to it. You know, pain has a mechanism, a biological mechanism that if you completely suppress it, it's also not good. So we're taking a wrong approach. And this is kind of what I stumbled upon with cold and flu is you take a drug that reduces your runny nose and a little bit your headache feeling or your fever. But as soon as, you know, you reduce that mucus production, that stops your body from, you know, basically expelling the virus. What it's doing with mucus production is trying to flush the system so the virus can't get in and replicate. It's trying to get it out of the body. And then when you've got a fever, your body temperature is raised, even if you don't actually have a fever, but when you're sick, your body temperature will rise a little bit. And it's so that basically the virus can't replicate as quickly in hot temperatures and your immune cells can function more optimally. But then we take a drug that suppresses that and lo and behold, a cold can be this like five to 10 day horrible thing that we all hate and is drawn out and we feel groggy and rough and it takes us ages to recover from. But actually, if we just changed the paradigm and shifted it to go, actually, what nutrients can I give my body to help my immune system function better and tackle the virus quicker, then we'll be out of this much quicker and then everything will be much better. And so... For me, you asked me what my mission is. My mission is to kind of change this healthcare approach a little bit because we've got effectively sick care, which is what is classed as healthcare today as drugs. And then we have food. And food, from a regulatory point of view, is not medicine. It can't be medicine. So food is food. It only goes in and it does nothing for you, which is fundamentally not true and has been proven a lot in science, but it is from a regulatory perspective. Healthcare is drugs, but it's really sick care. It doesn't actually help you get better. And I believe in the middle, there should be this industry that is actually healthcare, that is giving your body the right vitamins, minerals, and nutrients it needs to help it live healthily and create health and a good biochemistry within your body rather than just treating a symptom. And that is the bit that Tonic's trying to play in and trying to help educate people in because, you know, ultimately no one wants to be sick. But if they knew how to approach it in a different way, I think they would. So what products have you got? So right now we've got um, a range that mainly focuses on the immune system because it's our kind of hero defense healing system in the body and it's so so powerful and has been forgotten about and underloved for many many years so we have a kind of daily immunity vitamin which is essentially a barocca but for your immune system which is unhealthy but i just want some insurance some protection some daily top-ups of things that are going to keep my immune system healthy and ready then we have a kind of recovery and boost proposition which is our high dose sachets had which, a big night that what you go to asking not, for a friend no, asking for a friend yeah not hangover recovery actually okay. it's a slightly different thing okay. this is okay. more like sorry about that um <laughs> but like it's you know that time when you're feeling a, you wake up one morning and you just feel a bit groggy and a bit tired often that can come from a mineral or a vitamin deficiency so you need a little boost and it will prevent you from getting sick if you have that boost and that's often when you do get sick because your body's a little bit compromised and then we've got the recover hot soothing recovery drink which is like a lemon and honey like a lemsit that you know you literally have when you're feeling a bit comfort com yeah you need comfort but you're giving your body those nutrients to help you get better and then we have a, a nighttime 
product as well, which is a natural kind of sleep aid because everyone struggles to sleep now that they're on their phones right up until they go to bed and the blue light stops your natural melatonin production. So then you struggle to sleep and actually with the right herbs and plants, you can just easily drift off. Um, so we've made a product for that as well. But yeah, plenty more issues and things for us to look at and address in the future. Hangovers, please. I think they're they're self-inflicted. They're self-inflicted. So I think you're on your own with that. I've reached that age. I've reached that age. I can't drink anymore. I know, but I want to drink. Anyway. Electrolytes is probably the best thing you can do for hangovers. So, you know, like the sports electrolyte drinks with sodium, potassium, magnesium. Make sure you drink like a good couple of pints of water before bed, but with sodium, magnesium and potassium, and then you should be in a better place. So what are your top three reads? Oh, good question. I I do want to read more books than I do, but I, there's a few that stick in my mind as um, really, really interesting. So depends what angle. You'll probably gauge my interest from this. So one of the best, most fascinating stories I've read was um, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is the founder of Nike. And he it's literally his autobiography of how he started Nike. But the bit that made it so fascinating and relatable for me was actually, you know, it took him six years of being an accountant during the day and working on Nike in the night to get it to a place where he could then even go and start it up. And, you know, when you see how long some amazing brands take to develop and grow, you kind of can be a bit more kind to yourself that you haven't kind of conquered the world just yet, Um, which I liked a lot. Then Seth Godin has a really good book called Tribe. Um, Really short, easy read, but it all... It talks about how, you know, humans are tribal and this whole kind of social media thing that we have going on with influencers and stuff is really none of it's to do with the technology and social and it's everything to do with, you know, humans belonging to be part of a tribe. And I think it's so important that you understand who your tribe is as a business and who your customer is and you know, have that connection with them because if you don't, you, you know, you'll develop great products, but no one might like them because you don't understand the tribe. Uh, so that was really a really good read. And then the final one would probably be Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. And he was a Nobel Prize winning psychologist for some of his work. And he really talks about how the brain works and how we make decisions on a day-to-day basis and kind of also how consumers make decisions. So then you start to understand the the physiology behind why you need to make certain choices as a brand. So that is a, a great book as well. So, sir, if there was one thing in the world you could change over the next five years, what would it be? One thing in the world I could change? I think um, I really am getting a bit annoyed at the moment with all the censorship that's going on because from you know being someone who believes in science and you know the progression of science is driven by conversation and being able to discuss theories and hypotheses and you know moving things forward that way and to be honest you know the way things are going with big tech and governments and shutting yeah. stuff down really actually worries me because you know, they've already in the last 18 months, there's been cases of where Facebook would like ban stuff and block you from Facebook if you said this. And then 12 months later, they're like, oh, no, 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 we were wrong. We're not going to do that anymore. But 
how could we course correct and get to that point if we can't have a conversation about it? And that mm. to me is a little bit worrying because, you know, like this study with the homeless, that to me is like one of the most interesting discoveries of the pandemic. Can't talk about it because it'll get censored. I can't talk about COVID on social media. It'll get blocked. And that to me is worrying because if you really understood that, we should actually change our paradigm shift a bit in how we deal with microbes and bacteria and everything, you know, we, according to like the real studies, we're about 30 billion back, uh, human cells in our body, 40 billion bacteria, and about 380 trillion viruses. That's in your body. So we fundamentally don't quite understand how we're made up and that needs to change. So, okay, that brings us to our favourite part of the show. The business versus bullshit quickfire round. D, cue the music. This is where we reel off a list of key terms and all you have to do is tell us whether you think it's business or it's bullshit. Nice. I Are like you it. ready? I think so. Bit of bingo. Bit of bingo. So, diversity quotas. Bullshit. Stand-up meetings. Uh, business. Coffee. Business. Slogans in the workplace. Bullshit. Pub lunches. Bullshit. Formal workplace. Bullshit. Financial reporting standards. Oh, this is going to be... I'm interested. Go on, go on. Standards? By who? By what? What standards? They do, it just needs to add up. Everything else is bullshit. Non-executive directors. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, no, business. Paid for, bullshit. Uh, board minutes. Oh, the business. NDAs. Bullshit. Email. Uh, email. It's business. Contracts. Business. Acronyms. Bullshit. Office dogs. Business. I'm very impressed. <laughs> I think we learn a lot about our guests from these quick farm rounds. So, great stuff. Okay, so Sunna, if our listeners want to learn and find out more about you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Um, so Tonic, you can find at Tonic Health on social media. We're on all Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, if you want to find me, I'm on Instagram at The Health Fix, or you can find me on LinkedIn, just as Sunna Van Kampen, and I'll pretty much accept anyone because I think, you know, building the network is a good thing. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you to Sunna for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listeners. And we'll be back with another episode in a fortnight. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or whatever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at BizWithoutBS, where you'll find out more helpful business content. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for us using the hashtag BizWithoutBS and hashtag Ori Clark. That is O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K. Until next time, it's cheerio. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. 
to find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at auriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.